Chapter 15 of Arona, The Sea Voyage Hoist the sails! yelled a tall, dark man. He looked to be from somewhere in the Middle East and wore all black with short, dark, messy hair and a scruffy beard. The large, white, triangular sails filled with a salty sea breeze, and the ship immediately started to pull away from the dock of Russo's city of Castone. I'm Captain Brawshaw, he boomed at us. Now stay out of the way, and you might live to see another day. <laughs> he wheezed out a terrible laugh as he went back to the business of the ship. The crew shuffled about, tying and untying ropes and climbing up the many masts. So many of the beings on Arona looked to be human, but they would turn out to be something else entirely. I could usually tell by their mannerisms and accents. Others looked like us, but had evolved with more animal-like abilities. They had faster reflexes and could jump higher, run faster, see farther, or had incredible strength. Some had patterns on their skin, or were different shades and colors of all types. I saw creatures of many sizes, some as big as giants and others even smaller than the Elden. Several characteristics seemed to bind them all, however. They all had eyes, ears, and mouths of some kind, and there were always different sexes, though many of the times I couldn't tell which was which. This way, said a small Elden man named Boran. We saw many Eldens during our time in Castone working for Russo. Most of them had come from the conquered villages and were paid handsomely by Russo as scouts. Eldens were the only beings who could fly and still serve a master. There were other creatures that could fly in Arona, but most were more animal than intelligent being. You sleep here, he said, showing us to a dark room below the deck that smelled of mold. I went back up on the deck and watched as we sailed alongside the dark, rugged cliffs of Middleland, rising high above the sea. Mysterious and colorful flying creatures filled the sky. I marveled at what a truly beautiful world Arona was. Waterfalls, both large and small, cascaded down the moss-covered cliffs and into the deep, clear sea. Multicolored plants of all shapes and sizes burst out of the water skyward, some reaching over 50 feet above the waterline. Our vessel passed over some of the smaller plants, easily pushing them to the side as we sailed by. Several days passed, and we continued to sail in mostly calm weather with a nice breeze filling our triangular sails. The crew wasn't too friendly and didn't say much to us, so we mostly just tried to stay out of their way. Leafin loved to fish. I could watch him for hours. He would fly way up and then use his teleglasses to spot fish in the water below. Once he spotted one to his liking, he would nosedive up with his eagle and pull up just before he hit the water, releasing an arrow that was attached to a string that was fastened to his eagle's saddle. When successful, he would fly back up in the sky, yelling with joy. He then would fly the fish over to the boat, pulling the fish up to take it off the arrow as he did, and then throw it on deck. One morning, as I was looking out over the side of the ship, watching Leaf and Fish, a man walked right up to me. Hoi! I'm Yofa Dakino Pofamarik, but everyone on board calls me Gills, he said. When he saw the look of confusion on my face, he laughed and pulled back his long hair, exposing some rather disgusting fish gills that ran down both sides of his neck. His perfect smooth skin was a light gray color, and he had eyes that almost looked normal, but with a shimmer as though he was tearing up. His hands and feet were slightly wet. So I hear your outsiders from a different world? Earth, right? 
he asked. Yeah, that's us, trying to find our way back home, I replied. Good luck with that, he said in a pessimistic tone. My ancestors came to this world nearly 3,000 years ago. I've heard stories since I was a child about the first of our kind that came to Arona and their attempt to return back to our world and people. They wandered Arona for three generations searching for answers. Eventually, because of war, enslavement, and hardships, they settled back in the safety of the sea. What was your world like? I asked. Ah, my world is beautiful beyond your English words, said Gills, sighing heavily. A great emerald sea covers it entirely with the most magnificent glowing purple, pink, and yellow underwater mountain ranges. Our sky is a light red color, filled with even darker red clouds that let down glowing green rain on a daily basis. There is no war there. Ah, what I would give to see it. I have only heard the stories. You see, I was born on Arona. Ah, I said. And what is your world like? He asked. My world is also beautiful. Big blue oceans and green land as far as the eye can see, with rolling hills and tall, snow-capped mountains. It is a land of many people and kingdoms. Similar to Arona, I guess. Are you homesick? He asked. Homesick? I hadn't really thought about it, and stared over the railing at the unusually beautiful dark purple cliffs. No, I'm not homesick. I'm actually sick of home. He looked confused at my answer. Is there war there too? Like here? He asked. Yeah, there's always war on Earth. You'd think after thousands of years of living together, we would have figured it out by now, but unfortunately, we haven't. But why? Why do you Earthmen love war so much? He asked. Yeah, I I know. I'm not sure. I've been thinking a lot about that myself since we arrived on Arona. It seems like the humans here are causing most of the problems. Greed, I guess. I think greed and hatred are two of humankind's most terrible characteristics, and unfortunately they're also some of the most common. We discussed many things over the next couple of hours. Jack came over with great interest and had started to record much of what he said. He told us of all the sea creatures on his world, and of his people's customs and history. One thing I found particularly interesting was when we told him of planes. He said on his world, they too had something similar. Mysterious flying crafts would appear from time to time and hover over their sea before disappearing again in the sky. I assumed they were UFOs or visitors from a more advanced planet. The sails were lowered, and I watched one of the men release the anchor. Gills, get down there and see what you can find! yelled out the captain. And hurry it up, if you don't mind. I rushed to the other side of the ship and could see wreckage of some kind, with some debris floating on the surface of the clear water. Gills didn't hesitate, and dove over the railing and into the sea. I watched him put his hands and feet together, shooting downward into the deep in an effortless flash. He dove deeper and deeper, but still I could see him perfectly. The water was so clear that I could actually make out the wreckage on the bottom of the seafloor, hundreds of feet below. It was more like looking through air than water. About ten minutes went by, and finally Gills came back to the surface, carrying some objects. One of the crew threw over a rope ladder, and another a type of net, 
Gills put the items he had collected in the net and climbed back on board. What'd you bring me from the sea? The captain asked. I think you'll be pleased, said Gills with a smile. I watched as the crew members opened up a decorative metal chest that was full of those same glowing small stones that Trendon had given Wart as payment. There were also a number of other valuable looking objects, such as weapons and jewels. Gills put on a soggy hat that he had brought up, then looked at me and said, One of the perks of my job. What was down there, mate? asked the captain. What caused their fate? It wasn't an accident. That's Captain Carter's ship and crew down there, sir. The captain looked at Gills sharply. Carter? Gills just nodded. A dark look came over the captain's face, and he looked around and began yelling something at the crew in a different language. The crew hurried off and started working around the ship. I turned to my brothers, who all looked concerned. Leafen climbed on his eagle and flew up into the air, as did the other Eldon. About 15 minutes passed, and he came back and told Trendon that he couldn't see any ships nearby. We walked over to where the captain was looking out of the sea with his telescope. Is this common? Jack asked. What happened to them? Pirates? Common? Not anymore, said the captain. These waters have been quiet for a score. The great sea of Arona was once filled with pirates, murders, thieves, and more. You couldn't sail a few leagues before being attacked by one of them, but Russo put an end to that years before. How did he do that? asked Drew. Without answering, the captain walked off, clearly disturbed by the unusual discovery. Sorry, the captain is nervous because of the sunken ship, explained Gills. Why is the captain always rhyming? I asked. Oh, the captain is icky-ticky. All of his people rhyme. All of the time, he said with an impish smile. We all laughed. Good one, Gills. So, Gills, can you tell us more about how Russo came to rule the sea? Asked Jack. He's a clever man, that Russo. He started to buy out the pirates like my captain one by one. He paid pirates more than they ever made plundering and provided them with land and protection in Middleland. In return, the pirates would use their ships as his trading vessels. But then, Gil said, lifting up his finger for effect, then he offered them the opportunity to continue to pirate. Any ship not flying Russo's flag was hunted down and destroyed. The profits Russo made by controlling the sea routes gave him a nice return on his investment. He now has a large and powerful fleet of armed trading vessels. Russo is a very cunning man. A genius, really. Well, then what happened here? asked Larry. There are still a few rogue pirates left. Or maybe a newcomer. We've heard tales of pirates from the other side of the Great Sea. Who knows? Either way, they'll be hunted down, he said. What's on the other side of the Great Sea? I asked. Not really sure. No one really knows. There are rumors of new lands, dangerous creatures, riches, great kingdoms, you name it. Many have tried to find it, but no one has ever returned. It's too far for any ship to sail or creature to fly. It doesn't really matter, he said. He gave me a rough pat on the shoulder and walked away. Keep an eye on the horizon and let us know if you see any incoming ships, he called back to me. I looked out of the sea, feeling a nervous energy in the air. Several days passed and my nerves never really calmed. I kept thinking we'd be overrun at any moment. It didn't help that Gills told me that many attacks come at night, which meant 
I could hardly sleep. The thought of drowning at sea disturbed me. The appeal of sailing had worn off quicker than I'd expected. On the upside, the crew warmed up to us, and we had a good time with them. Most of them didn't speak English, but Gills and the captain were able to translate. We sailed for two weeks without incident. One day, we were out on the deck around noon when one of the crew yelled out something and pointed down into the water. Langos! I looked down and saw a huge creature swim by, just underneath the boat. I didn't see much of it, but in my head I'd seen a swimming dinosaur. It was much larger than the ship, and a light green color. It disappeared in the distance, then seconds later, another one came by, and then another. They were huge, and each one looked as if it was going to slam into the boat. I must have had a concerned look on my face because Gills walked over to me and said, Langos, don't worry, they're hunting fish, not us. They're harmless. Leafen and the other Elden, Boran, quickly got on their eagles and flew off the ship, grabbing a large net that they attached in between their eagle saddles. I saw the Langors circle around in the water a few hundred feet from the ship. Then I saw a bubbling in the water as millions of colorful fish came to the surface. The Langors had trapped and confused them with their bubbles. Leafen and Boran flew over to the bubbling as fast as they could, with the net spread out between their eagles, as wide as it could be. Then, after flying up about 100 feet, they dove down in unison into the bubbling water, hugging their eagles tightly. A few seconds went by before they resurfaced. They struggled out of the water, their eagles fighting to take off. Their net was full of squirming fish, making it difficult for the eagles to fly with such a heavy load. They barely made it over high enough to land on the ship's deck. Seconds later, multiple langors shot up out of the water, taking in mouthfuls of fish as they did. I'd seen pictures of the Loch Ness Monster, and this looked just like it. A thought began to tickle my brain. Could the Loch Ness mystery on Earth be true? Could there be some kind of reverse portal, and one of these creatures actually ended up in Scotland? The wind died down, and the ship came to a stop. The sails were lowered, and we made a fire on a type of ingenious round sandbox on the deck of the ship, and cooked some of the fish that Leafen and Boran had caught. Hey, Leafen, why don't you let me try and ride your eagle? asked Cubby, walking over and stroking the giant bird. No, only Leafen can ride eagle, said Trendon. Good, said Leafen, as he grabbed the leather reins of his eagle and handed them to Cubby. Trendon stormed off, as he usually did, mumbling something in Eldon. Don't worry, Leafen, if he struggles too much, I'll jump off, Cubby reassured him. He smiled as he mounted the eagle and held on tight. The large eagle dropped from the railing, struggling to stay just above the waterline. Cubby's feet dragged in the sea, and then the eagle suddenly shot up about 50 feet. He'd just gotten his bearings, when the eagle then immediately dove down into the depths of the sea. Cubby attempted to hold on, as they both plunged deeper and deeper. We watched in delight, as he then let go of the reins and quickly swam to the surface, gasping for air and laughing. It was obvious the eagle disdained any unwanted passengers. I'm next, said Drew. Let's see who can stay on the longest. Once Leafen saw Drew wanted to try, he used his whistle to call to his eagle, who had landed on the top of the highest mast. The bird flew down reluctantly, unable to disobey his master. Drew wrapped his arms around its neck and tried to squeeze the body of the eagle with his thighs. The eagle took off and immediately dropped just above the water, swerving from side to side, trying to knock Drew off. Drew continued to hold strong. The eagle then turned completely upside down, 
causing Drew's head to dip into the sea, forming a wake as it flew. Seconds later, Drew let go, coughing and laughing as he came out of the water. He tried to kill me, Drew yelled as he swam back to the boat. We all laughed. This time, the eagle flew back eagerly, seemingly excited to make a fool of yet another one of us. I was next, and terrified the eagle would fly up high. I put my toes in the tiny stirrups and held onto the reins with all my strength. The eagle dove down again towards the water before shooting straight up. Then it lost all momentum and let out a loud shriek. It struggled to reach more altitude by flapping its large wings with all its might. I expected it to dive into the water like it had with Cubby, but instead, it just continued to climb. It was as if the eagle knew I was terrified of heights. We passed the top of the tallest mast, and still it climbed without showing any sign of stopping its ascent. I panicked and let go, leaping down into the water before it was too late, screaming the entire way down. I hit the water hard and came up to a shipload of laughter. Why'd you jump? asked Cubby through fits of laughter. I laughed and put my head back underwater to get one last look before I climbed back on deck. Have you guys noticed how amazing this water is to swim in? It's like flying, I said. My brothers just looked at each other, grinning ear to ear, and jumped overboard. The sea was completely different from the ocean on Earth. It wasn't salty, but had a more of a sour taste, like lemon juice. The water was light and silky smooth, and I could go farther and faster with less effort. Tiny bubbles, almost invisible, were everywhere. Josh thought that maybe the water had a lot of oxygen in it because we could hold our breath for so much longer than on Earth. The sea was as clear as air, and we could see fish and creatures swimming hundreds of feet away. It didn't even hurt our eyes. The last hour of flying and swimming was the most fun we'd had since arriving on Arona. It was great to forget our troubles for a while and just have fun. The sails started to flutter and the ship began to move. Here comes the wind, oh lord! All of you get back on board, yelled the captain. Later that night, we sat up on the deck playing a type of card game the crew had taught us, called Pino. I looked out over the star-filled sky with its two moons and wondered about everything we had seen so far. You know, I think it's a good sign seeing that Loch Ness-looking sea creature today, I said. Maybe there is a way home somehow. Yeah, and you guys noticed that Bigfoot-looking dude in the bar that Wart's men cut in half? Asked Jack. I just don't understand how things like that ended up on Earth. But yeah, either way it's a good sign, said Allie. Hopefully this King Richard will have some concrete answers for us. I'm worried about Marin, Drew said. What if she's captured by the Taronks? I feel like I made a mistake leaving her. Don't worry, man. She's safe, I assured him. That city can't be taken over. Just then, an argument broke out between two drunken crew members over a gambling card game. One of the men suddenly took out a knife and stabbed the other several times before pushing his body over the rail and into the sea. The captain came over and said something before nonchalantly returning to his hammock and going back to sleep. Cubby laid in the hammock next to me, half drunk, and we both watched the incident in silence. I was shocked, terrified, and speechless. Just another beautiful day on Arona, Cubby finally muttered, before he turned over and went to bed like nothing had happened. It was unnerving how quickly we were reminded that this place was nothing like home, and that at any moment, things could get deadly. Death was a constant here. Life didn't mean much. Ironic, 
considering this might be the one place in the universe where you could live forever. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to chapter 15 of Arona. Unfortunately, there's going to be a bigger gap in between each episode, as I had to start a new job that takes up most of my time. If you have any questions or comments, send them over to me at adamjamesbooks at gmail.com. Thanks again, and we'll continue right here out at sea on Arona in the next episode.